I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, you are very welcome to The Tonight Show. Overwhelmed rescue teams continue the search for survivors in Turkey and Syria following the devastating earthquake that is estimated to have killed more than 7,000 people, impacting 13 million. Justice Minister Simon Harris says he will reintroduce guarded checks on asylum seekers arriving on planes into the Irish state to ensure they have the correct documentation. And a CyberSafe Kids report finds that half of eight 12 year olds said they spend too much time online. It's a time parents step in and take a bit more responsibility. We used to be concerned about children over 12 when they went into the first year, second year, third year. We now need to be teaching our young people from the sort of from first class onwards. Do join our conversation online with your comments and your questions. It's hashtag tonight, VMTV. Well, as nighttime descends on the areas devastated by the Turkey-Syria earthquake, rescuers battle darkness and freezing conditions in the ongoing hunt for survivors. The death toll between the two countries now stands at over 7,200, though this is likely to rise considerably. A little earlier, I spoke to news correspondent Trent Murray, who is situated in Elazig in Turkey, northeast of the epicentre. Well, this city of Elizig, uh, in the sort of northern part of this region, which has been hit by these quakes, it here has been spared by a lot of the worst of it. There has been some superficial damage here. Some smaller buildings have collapsed, but nowhere near uh, the damage that we have seen in some of the other cities in the region. Because the electricity is still on here, many people here are doing what they can to try and help their neighbours just 100 kilometres down the road in a city called Malatia, which has virtually been flattened in the city centre. A number of buildings have collapsed and search and rescue crews now are, are working there, desperately trying to find anybody that may be still in the rubble, of course. It is a picture that we are seeing right across southern Turkey. It is also just very, very cold. Uh, tonight, in some places, it's going to drop to minus seven degrees. That means, of course, that that window of survivability uh, is closing fast for anybody that may still be out there. The rescue crews do know that and that is why they are working as fast as they can. The Turkish state has mobilised around 50,000 people. Many of them are volunteers, but also help is arriving from both across Europe and the United States, as well as as far afield as China and, and South Korea. They're all just focused on one thing, which is to try and listen to the rubble, to keep those city centres quiet and to see if there is anybody that may still be alive in there despite the terrible conditions and despite the fact that some 6,000 buildings across the region have collapsed, many of them high-rise apartment blocks. Well, for more on this, I'm joined in studio by Fianna Fáil TD Jim O'Callaghan, journalist Razan Ibrahim, 
Head of News at the Irish Independent, Kevin Doyle, and via Skype by CEO of UNICEF Ireland, Peter Pyro. You are all very welcome uh, to the programme. Uh, Kevin, I'm going to start with you. Look, I think we probably all spent the last couple of days watching uh, this footage. It was so distressing to watch the desperation on people's faces as they waited to see if their loved ones could be found alive, as they waited really, I think, as the day went on for miracles. Yeah, and it's hard to comprehend, Kira, in some ways, because this is not an area that very many Irish people have been to. Lots of people have been to Turkey, but not to this part in the southern part, obviously, and not to Syria. And so it seems very, very far away. But I was even struck tonight watching some of the news reports where they were doing that thing where everybody goes silent to try and hope and hear the noises. And it really brought me back to Crease Law, which you can't compare, obviously, but the devastation we felt in Ireland at that, and this on a scale um, of, of, you're possibly looking at 20,000 upwards dead, videos of children being pulled from the rubble while their, their mother's, mother was left dead, beside, left behind. Um, it's really just, it's really upsetting to watch and it's just very hard, I think, to, to fully understand what we can even, I'm sure Peter will speak about it, but what we can even do to help. Yeah, um, Razan, those efforts to find survivors running into the second night now, but I was struck what you said there, Kevin, about the noise and they spoke about the, you know, the noise, the cries for help from survivors um, stuck in the rubble. But as the days and the hours go on, there's more and more and more silence. That window of survivability that Trent spoke about there, that closes and that's so very difficult for all those who've been affected. Um, rescue workers are working against time. Every minute is worth it at this stage. That is why the Turkish um, people and Syrian people currently are in desperate need for any little help. Uh, any little uh, support from big organizations, rescue teams from across the world to come and help and ease the pain and help the rescue workers on the ground. Currently in Syria, I mean, as we know, Syria has been facing 12 years of destruction and war and poverty non-stop. It's already in, in, in a time of crisis. Now with this earthquake, it added a huge, huge ordeal and tragedy to, to the people. Um, I'm, I'm in contact with the people on the ground. There is you no, still have absolutely, extended family still, there. You have friends there in the area that has been affected. I still have my, my, my uh, aunties, my uncles, my childhood friends that I haven't seen for 12, 13 years. Um, they are telling me that there is no support at all on the ground. People are, are helping each other. Neighbours are trying with their hands to dig uh, in the rubble and try to find people. They, are, they can hear the sound and the voices of the people under the, the rubble. I know families, entire family is under the rubble right till now, till our, our show. Still, there is no hope for them to be rescued or to be to be saved. It's a real, real tragedy. And till now as well, we haven't seen a, a real support 
or we haven't seen AIDS entering North Syria, for example, till today. We have seen a lot on Turkey, which is amazing to see, but what we need to see is more support and aid mm -hmm. inside Syria, in North Syria, Idlib, Aleppo, and Latakia, and all the places affected. Okay, I just want to go to our Skype this evening from a humanitarian perspective, Peter. How would you sum up what UNICEF are seeing in Turkey and Syria? Uh, well, Kira, good evening. The uh, the full uh, uh, situation, of course, has to emerge. It still is emerging, especially from the areas outside of the cities. But all the reports that we're getting on both sides of the uh, border from our teams is that we're looking at a real major humanitarian uh, catastrophe here now. Uh, as Kevin said, uh, six uh, more thousand uh, houses, apartment blocks uh, destroyed, just flattened, fell like pancakes. Uh, huge damage to infrastructure, to schools, to houses, uh, to water infrastructure particularly, all point to this being a very serious catastrophe. And I know you said earlier today that the immediate aftermath <clears throat> of a crisis like this, this is the most critical time. But how difficult or what are the challenges in trying to get aid, particularly into those areas of northern Syria? Well, it soon morphed from a search and rescue operation, regrettably, because of the conditions we're hearing on the ground, uh, temperatures getting down to very, very low temperatures. Uh, that makes it very, very difficult, I regret to say, to survive uh, in, in collapsed buildings. So it will morph quickly from a search and rescue operation, which is critically important, and every minute counts in that regard. But it will morph, unfortunately, into a large-scale transnational global humanitarian uh, situation. In terms of getting aid in, we're, we're fortunate, certainly from the UNICEF side, uh, I have been to both Gaziantep uh, near the epicentre and Aleppo on, in the uh, Syrian side. Uh, um, and it's, they're, they're very different contexts and it's, it's a very complex environmental, a very complex humanitarian situation. Obviously in, in, in Syria, the security situation is fragile when, when I was there. Uh, a couple of years ago, uh, have we, we have a lot of pre-positioned aid. So, for example, in Aleppo, we've already begun trucking water because a lot of the water infrastructure has been damaged. High energy biscuit, uh, biscuits uh, for children. Uh, they need blankets, uh, food, uh, warm clothing. That's the absolute, very immediate concerns. Then it's going to morph into, into a next phase of where do we house hundreds of thousands of people who no longer have accommodation in these high-rise buildings, which is a predominant type of home uh, in Turkey and in northern Syria. So this is going to be very, very complex uh, across a number of countries. And the, the, the area that has been damaged, I should say, Nicola, is very, very wide indeed. And the full picture is yet emerging. But we're looking like uh, months of humanitarian uh, response here, I, I regret to say. Um, Jim O'Callaghan, there has been calls for international help. We have responded. We're sending €2 million Euro in emergency aid. What else can and should we be doing? Well, we're providing emergency supplies as well. The Tonsha announced today that there'll be €2 million in emergency aid immediately. We're also this year going to contribute €12.5 to the United Nations Central Emergency Fund. So that's something that can be availed of as well. Listen, I suppose this horrific event reminds us how vulnerable we are as humans to events that are outside our control. Mm -hmm. There are certain things that simply can't be controlled and the movement of 
tectonic plates as one of them. Listen, I think the Irish government and the Irish people won't be found wanting. We'll certainly be providing as much support as possible. Interested to hear what Peter had to say there. I hadn't thought about the low temperatures there because you're aware sometimes in earthquakes, people can survive under rubble for quite a period of time. And notwithstanding the temperature, I think the immediate absolute priority needs to be to get emergency workers and emergency machinery there as quickly as possible, because there is the possibility that people could remain alive underneath the rubble, you know. Uh, the real difficulty here, Kevin, is we have obviously two countries affected, uh, both experiencing devastating loss. But you do feel when you look at the situation in northern Syria that it is particularly grave there. Yeah, and that area in, in Turkey. And the problem here is getting the people in to help with this because they don't have the resources there themselves. They don't have the council structures that you might expect in, a, in an average country that they could actually get people on the ground locally. So people will have to come in, but then you have to deal with regimes. And even in Turkey, there, there are a lot of questions because, you know, this isn't the first time, Jim made the point, you can't um, control tectonic plates but you can prepare to some extent for what's happened here. It's not a surprise that there was an earthquake in this region. Well, there was a devastating earthquake in Turkey back in 1999, wasn't there? Mm. There were 17,000 people killed there. There will be questions asked, I'm sure, about what lessons were learned, what infrastructure was affected. You heard um, Trent there and Peter, they're talking about these buildings going down, flattening like pancakes in a matter of moments. Will the government come under pressure there to yeah. answer those questions? We've all seen those videos. Of course they will, because the building standards they expect there are very different to what we might have here because they know this type of thing can happen. They've experienced it before. So, I mean, Turkey is a strange political setup. Erdogan, the president, has given himself emergency powers for three months. There's an election due there in three months. So he can effectively overrule any government decision himself for the next three months. So I suspect there is going to be a big political effort to... Um, carry the narrative, but you're right, there could be a backlash politically. Yeah, there's a difficulty too in getting um, aid into Syria, uh, Razan, because a lot of the border crossings between Syria and Turkey have been closed. I think there's only one currently open and the infrastructure there has been incredibly damaged. What role will President Assad play in all of this? Because obviously the areas that were, were devastated and damaged were held by rebels, by opposition. Will he be able in any way to park the politics and allow aid in there. Yeah, Do you have any is, hope for that? I mean, to be honest, I don't have hopes for that. And the 12 years of war uh, teaches us a lot about the regime and the kind of responses and how they turn every humanitarian crisis to a political, which is something extremely, extremely unacceptable and dangerous. Who's affected in Syria? They are Syrian people from across religion, from across ethnicities and across political spectrum. And this is what we need to care about, what we need to 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 focus on the humanitarian side. But unfortunately, the history taught us that this is something, hopefully, it will change, but I don't think that it will. But just to mention as well here that during the war, around 4 million Syrian refugees are living in Turkey currently. And most of them are based in southeast of, of the Turkey, and I know Till now, a lot of people who are Syrians escaped the war and now they are killed and they are under the rubble.
right now. Yeah, just for people at home that perhaps have forgotten about the situation in Syria, Razana, as I think many people have because it has been going on so long. I mean, this is a crisis on top of a crisis in that area, isn't it? Absolutely. Uh, since the last few years, if I can, I can't really find the right words to describe the tragedy people have been living the last few years. Medicine, painkillers is a challenge to get a painkiller, no electricity, no water, petrol, uh, education system is, is completely damaged, hospitals, everything in the country is really the worst situation to get food, to get water. So that's a real challenge for any person in Syria. And this is uh, to compare as well north of Syria where displaced people are living. They've been living in tents for 12 years. And this is absolutely horrendous. And we haven't seen real political um, will to help the people. So we hope now the world will wake up a little bit and look at the human side of this and try to help and support the people. Do you think this will be a catalyst for something? You were not along there, Jim, given the fact, as Razan says, this is going on for 12 years and people have largely been forgotten at this I point. I know, but in fairness, I was looking to see today what level of support Ireland has provided as a country to Syria since the horrific war started. Like, we've provided 220 million by way of humanitarian support to Syria. But unfortunately, Syria probably has been forgotten about because of other events around the world. But just in terms of the point you raise about whether or not Assad will be able to rescue people in, I suppose, opposition-occupied areas, I think that would be highly unlikely. He like will Assad, not accept international aids well, if you look being at the, brought in, particularly maybe from across Turkey, into these areas. But if you look at Assad and President Putin spent years bombing Aleppo, creating the type of devastation that we see recently caused by the earthquakes. So I find it difficult to think that he would want to come to the support of opposition areas where you have people who are living in devastation since he's inflicting devastation upon them to begin with. And they don't care about the people. That's simply, they don't care about the, the people, their people, etc. They are going to use this as political game, which is extremely cheap. Um, I just want to go back to Peter a moment. I was so conscious watching the footage all day today of the trauma that people will have suffered here, the long-term psychological impact when your area has been affected by a crisis of this scale. Yes, uh, the irony is, uh, as, as Rosanna and Jim just pointed out there, uh, the children and people of uh, northern Syria have already been suffering from uh, long-term psychological damage because of the awful civil war. When I was in Aleppo, Quite frankly, it, it looked as if it had already suffered from a large-scale earthquake, such was the destruction there. So you, you could think of one of the, one of the least uh, able places in the world to withstand a disaster like this. It's already incredibly fragile up there. As you were saying, it's very hard to get humanitarian aid in because of the security situation. But uh, as Rosanna also pointed out, uh, millions of people left northern Syria going across the border. I met them in Gaziantep uh, a, a number of years ago to flee the civil war. So already that area is under enormous humanitarian stress anyway. So if you were to pick anywhere in the world for a crisis of this magnitude to happen, it would be harder to it'd be hard to pick a worse area than has been affected by this uh, devastating earthquake. So th this really is an emerging tragedy, I hate to say. Just a final question to you, Roseanne. For the people who have survived here, but perhaps their homes or buildings have been destroyed, what are they facing now? Um, 
I mean, it's been around like two days. They still live in a shock. A friend of mine texted me and she said, I'm still till now shivering because what we have witnessed is beyond um, anyone could imagine. And the fear of their lives, of their friends, of their families, etc. And just to, to the idea that there are people next to you in this building under the rubble and no one can help. No one can do anything. That is an absolute desperation and, and frustration. Um, and, and the frustration is, is really overwhelming. All right. To we be honest, are there. Our, our hearts go out to them. Uh, that's all we have time for on this. Uh, my thanks to Razan and to uh, Peter for joining us this evening. Jim and Kevin are going to be staying with us. And after the break, the government say they're ramping up checks for those arriving into the country without documentation. Stay with us. Welcome back. Well, the government has sanctioned the resumption of passport checks on those arriving on flights into the country in an attempt to address a significant number of asylum seekers who have lost or destroyed their travel documents while travelling into the state. The policy was discontinued after the change of government in 2020, but has been reactivated by Minister for Justice Simon Harris. Well, Jim O'Callaghan and Kevin Doyle are still with us, and we're also joined this evening by Labour Senator Marie Sherlock and immigration lawyer Cahill Malone. You're all very welcome to the programme. Cahill, I want to start with you because, as it stands, if an individual who's seeking asylum arrives into this country and says they have no identity documents, they have no travel documents, What's the process? What happens? Well, uh, Kira, it's much the same as for anybody else. I mean, people are obliged to make every reasonable effort to establish their identity. But the fact of the matter is that people who are coming here where the government say they have destroyed their documents have almost certainly been traveling on either fake documents or real documents with the picture changed. I mean, I think we're all aware of the reality that there are agents, you might call them traffickers, um, to whom people pay large sums of money in order to get them here. And of course, the reason for that is quite simply, as Deputy O'Callaghan will, will know, there is no such thing as an asylum visa to come to Ireland. So if you're fleeing from a country, whether it be Afghanistan or Syria or, or Eritrea or, or wherever it is in the world, and you want to come here to seek protection, it's not as if you can just rock up to the airport in your home country with your own passport mm. and ask to come to Ireland. And what checks or searches are done by border officials here um, on to, to establish where somebody's travel documents have gone? Well, in terms of the travel documents themselves, often the, the process will be that people will have handed them back to the agent before they get to immigration control. And the reason for that, of course, is they're very valuable documents and the agent wants to use them again. When somebody gets to the country, however, they apply for international protection, asylum in the International Protection Office, the first thing that happens is they're fingerprinted. And there's a European-wide system called Eurodac, where every country in the European Union shares that information to check if these people have ever applied for a visa for one of these countries before, if they've ever applied for asylum before. And they also run checks through Interpol and Europol. Um, but ultimately, uh, when it comes to the checks on these people's identity, I don't actually know that having the documents that they uh, travelled to Ireland on would be any more of a benefit to establishing who they are. Because as I say, almost inevitably, the reason that they're discarding them is because they were in fact fake documents to begin with. 
All right, let me just go to my panel here. What exactly is the Minister for Justice proposing here, Kevin, when he talks about these Garda checks? Well, essentially, it's the idea that, in some ways, I'm not even sure they're, they're expect to catch that many people, inverted commas, coming off the planes without documents or with fake documents, as Cottle outlined. But it's to kind of discourage. Word goes back that Ireland is becoming a place that is a bit tougher now, that you can't just walk into. Because the idea is, you come off the plane with no documents, you get to the immigration window, which we all have in Dublin Airport or wherever, and at that point you go, I want to seek asylum, and I have nothing. And, and therefore, the country has to take you in and has to put you in the process. Um, so and there used to be these checks. Yeah. Why did they stop? I think we probably became a little bit more lax, and Jim can probably speak to that better from a political point of view, but I think emigration, even go back 12 months ago, wasn't an issue. It wasn't something that was being debated at any great... I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Lent in the doll. Um, it wasn't something we were talking about on shows like this or writing about in newspapers. So I think there probably was a state that there wasn't huge resources being put into this and they were Gardaí were dealing with other things because, let's be honest, if you're going to have Gardaí checking several planes a week from... Presumably, they'll pick certain destinations to do it from. That's Garda resources. And we, we could sit here and have another panel talking about where Garda resources should be used for rural crime or whatever else. So these, I suppose, are the choices that have to be made. All right, Jim McCullen, what do you view or how do you view the issue of people who are seeking asylum coming into this country um, without any travel documents? Because we saw figures, I think they were released yeah. to News Talk last week uh, under an FOI, um, that it was about 5,000 yeah. individuals, I think 70% men, 30% women, uh, over the age, I think, of 16 who arrive into this country without any form of ID seeking asylum. Yeah, well, it is unusual for a person to arrive in, and those numbers uh, unnerve me, to be honest with you, when I hear that 5,000 of the 13,600 people who applied for international protection last year arrived in without any travel documentation. And if you look at what the Oireachtas has decided how this should be dealt with, like under Section 4 of the Immigration Act, 
we say that an immigration official is entitled to refuse entry to a person if they don't have a passport or appropriate travel documentation. Under Section 11 of the same Act, it's a criminal offence not to produce it. And under the International Protection Act 2015, if you look at Section 20, it says that uh, a guard can arrest a person if the guard has reasonable suspicion that they've destroyed their travel documentation. Listen, Kevin makes a valid point. Back in 2019, we only had 4,700 applicants for international protection. Like 2022 was an extraordinary and an exceptional year. We had 70,000 Ukrainians who came in who don't have to apply for international protection because they have an automatic entitlement to be here because of the temporary directive. And then on top of that, we had 13,600 applying for international protection. Like, I think it is perfectly legitimate of the government to try to raise questions and for the state to raise questions about people who are arriving in without any travel documentation, any passports. And can I say this? I think it is really unfair in people who are entitled to international protection, people coming from Syria, if it is the case that the system appears to be abused by certain individuals, because really the people who are being damaged are the legitimate people who are seeking international protection. Uh, you use the word there, perturbed. Yeah. What are you perturbed about? Well, I think it, people, the fact that 5,000 of the 13,600 applicants for international protection who arrived here last year arrived with no documentation, with no passports. Like, you cannot get on an airplane if you're a non-Irish non citizen to come to Ireland unless you show a passport. But also we need to put more of an obligation. But I suppose we, we heard what Cahill said there, that a lot of people will be perhaps arriving with fake documents, you know, that will have been trafficked into the country. They return them to their trafficker in the airport before they get to the window. That there's not much point in them showing a document if it's fake in the first no, place. No, there's no, a, there's a statutory obligation on a person arriving into this country under the Immigration Act that we have all enacted in the Oireachtas to produce your passport or equivalent travel documentation. So it's not something we can just sweep away and say, actually, listen, it's okay, they, they don't have the passport. We're perfectly entitled in order to protect this system of international protection. And Ireland has been very fair and generous and welcoming, and I want to see that continue. But I think if there is a perception abroad that the system is being played, and that will arise if 5,000 people are arriving in without passport documentation, well, then we're going to undermine the system. Uh, Marie Sherlock, we're undermining the system here by allowing this perception that the system can be played. I think the first thing that nobody should be surprised that 40% of, of applicants uh, are coming without uh, valid travel documents. Like as, as Cahill said, they're not coming here on a holiday. They're coming here because they're fleeing persecution or a country that's unsafe. And I think really what's going on here is a deflection from the failures within the international protection application system that currently exists. Like the government has set a target of processing applications, a, a six, a target of six months. It has continually failed that. It takes between a year to two years to get a decision from this state with regards to a, a person's ap a, a asylum application in this country. And I think there's been a lot floated in recent days about, oh, that, you know, people's applications will be assessed at the airport. But, but let's think about this for a second. You know, at the moment, somebody who arrives in the country, there's a brief interview and then they have a questionnaire to fill out. Fill out. That questionnaire, as I understand it, is 70 pages long. There needs, to, you know, but, and, but and, and huge amount of detail. That, that so, says 
there is a legal framework there. There's a legal obligation that requires anybody coming into the state to have a travel document, to, to produce a travel document but, for the state. Well, well yeah, but, but I suppose the thing is, let's put ourselves in the shoes of those who are actually coming here to this country, right? Like, you know, it, 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 it's not a picnic to try and get here if you're fleeing persecution from your country. Okay, and let Jim respond to that. Is coming. So I, I think the thing is, like, fine to have the Gardaí there, but actually let's talk about the real issues here, about how we're, pro what the time okay. in which we're processing asylum applications yeah. and let's do it within the six month process right. as yeah. opposed Marie to taking a year to two years. Point. We are taking too long in processing the applications, but I think we need to be realistic about the numbers in 2022. It was an exceptional year in terms of international protection. We're talking about 13,600. But like to adopt Marie's logic, we, we, we shouldn't even have an international protection system. The purpose of it is to try to assess whether or not people are legitimately fleeing persecution. Now, we can have another discussion if we want about whether or not people should be brought in because of their economic migrants. That's a separate thing, and we can have a legitimate discussion. But the purpose of international protection is to assess whether or not people are fleeing situations such as Syria, where they're perfectly clearly entitled to come into the country because they're being persecuted. And if there are people who aren't fleeing persecution, well, then they are rejected and people are rejected. But it's, you, it's a process. So is the logical conclusion of that, Jim, that if somebody doesn't come here with a passport, they're deported immediately? Is, is that well, what you're saying? The, because the, that's, that's what it sounds the, like. The, the law, which was enacted by the Oireachtas under the Immigration Act, says that you've got to produce your passport when you arrive here. And if somebody gets on an airplane with a passport, they should produce it at the other end. But there's also an obligation on the airlines. The airlines, you can't get on an airline to no, Ireland, just hear me out, yeah. unless you show your passport getting on it. So the airlines will have that information and they should make that information available what about to the that, immigration authorities in Ireland. That like point, the purpose that here is to okay. try to identify whether or not the person coming is fleeing persecution. Okay, in, in terms of a solution here, the former Justice Minister, the former AG, uh, Michael McDool, was in News Talk last week and he said, if you arrive in this country and you cannot produce travel documentation and you're seeking asylum, immediate deportation. That's I don't, think, I don't think you can have a blanket uh, solution to this. But I do think if people arrive in without any travel documentation and without showing the passport, which they showed a number of hours earlier in the departure airport, that there should be a presumption that these people are in a way trying to undermine the system. OK, let me let Cahill respond to that. Yeah, hi, Skier. Well, uh, first thing I'd say is that in respect of what uh, Marie Sherlock asked, I, I don't think that Jim's really answered that. I mean, the fact of the matter is that, I mean, Deputy O'Callaghan as a senior counsel is well aware we've obligations at domestic law level, European law level and international law level to allow every person to apply for asylum if they get here. So Senator McDougall's suggestion is an on-runner from the start. But more to the point, let's just take people that I presume Deputy O'Callaghan would say are a bit like the Syrians, definitely entitled to protection, being Afghans. The Taliban have not issued passports since they came to power. So if you were somebody who did not have a passport when the Taliban came to power and you were fleeing, it is absolutely impossible for you to travel on a real Afghan passport. Right. So I come back to what I originally said. People who are fleeing from persecution will get here whatever way they can. There is no asylum visa. There's no right way to come here. And until that's introduced, they're going to come by whatever route possible. All right, let me go over to uh, Kevin Doyle here because there was an interesting poll, uh, Kevin, and I'm wondering, is it feeding into government thinking at this point in the Sunday Independent, which said, um, do you think Ireland has admitted too many refugees? And the results were 56% of Irish people said yes at this point. Yeah, 56% think we have taken in too many refugees. 30% said no, and the rest were, were unsure. And there was a separate question within that poll as to what is the most important issue for the government right now. And almost one in five said immigration, which has kind of come from almost nowhere in terms of that was way down in the small percentages 
um, if you go back even just before Christmas, um, it's still behind uh, housing, cost of living and healthcare. But it's it's now up there in that kind of top it's section. It's a question that politicians are, are going to be asked on the doorstep now. It is. What is your policy? It has become part of the political debate, and I suppose it's worth pointing out. We don't that phrase far right keeps getting put out there a lot. We don't actually have, I don't think, uh, any far right representation in the Dáil, um, and all the political parties have they have different views, as you see with Jim and Anne Marie here. But actually, Jim and Marie are probably not that far apart in terms of their overview of, of where this should go. But I think the problem now for the politicians is that there is a movement behind this and it is becoming a political issue. And what you see Simon Harris doing with the Gardaí, that's yeah. a reaction. Isn't it? That's, that's sort of as a response hmm. to the concerns that are being raised to a poll like yours in the Sunday Independent. Yeah, it's and it's not a panacea by, by any stretch of the imagination. No, the, the dial has moved and the politicians feel they have to do something. But I think the bigger issue for them is that they can't fix all the problems that we have in the country are intertwined. When it comes to housing, comes to healthcare, comes to childcare places and schools, they're all intertwined and you can't really fix them, emigration without fixing them. And just to be clear, these checks in the airport, Jim, they're three times a week. I know, but it's an, an entitlement for the guards or immigration officials to decide how many checks they should do. And I know their Minister Harris has indicated they're going to start off at three a week. Do you think there should be more? I think if people uh, leave another country with a passport, even if it is an invalid or a fake one, they should produce that document at the other end. Okay. There's no reason for them not to. In terms of that poll, 56% of Fianna Foyle voters um, in that poll said Ireland has taken in too many refugees. 56% of your party's voters. Do you agree with them? Well, I'm concerned when I hear that because I suppose the thing that concerns me is that immigration into Ireland, which I suppose started back 25 years ago, widespread immigration, has been very successful. And people have integrated very well and Irish people have been very welcoming. I'm just concerned we cannot allow this issue to upset that and to change that dynamic because we have handled it very well. But it's obviously a sensitive issue, as you can see around the world, and Ireland is going to be no different. And like some of the things I've seen online have been horrifically racist. Some of the things are being promoted by the far right. But I don't think that what we can say is that anyone who has concerns about immigration is in some way a deplorable. Like people have legitimate issues about it. I think the correct way to deal with it is for them to speak about them and for politicians like me to give information because a lot of people aren't aware of the international protection process. Uh, one of the other things coming from the Labour Party, uh, you feel to sort of try and address some of the, call it concerns, call it anti-immigrant sentiment that we're seeing in the country, uh, is to allow people to work. You think that would make a difference, that they should be able to work at an earlier point in their application process. You have to wait for six months at the moment. You, you, um, and you think that could, could maybe foster a more positive attitude? Well, absolutely. I think the important thing to say is that anybody who's ever been jobless in their life and looking for work and not having success and looking for that job knows that feeling of being unwanted and unproductive. And, 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 and I think when you look at, we force asylum seekers in this country to wait six months before they can seek work. And, I, and frankly, that is far too long. And when you think at the moment that we have employers across many sectors in this country who are pleading with the government to loosen and expand the employment permits scheme uh, to bring in people from beyond the borders of the European uh, economic area, then I think we need to look at the people who are here in this country and shorten that period from but six months to But why do you think it would change months. attitudes? 
Well, I think that, uh, well, I, I think it's important for the people themselves who are here mm. seeking asylum, that it gives them a chance to go out and, and, and earn a living and, and to integrate. Now, of course, we'd have to significantly beef up the labour inspectors in this country to make sure that people are not going to be exploited. And I think there's a real concern about that. But I think, you know, look, we have, we have a very large number of people now who are effectively forced to wait a very long period of time um, before they can actually integrate themselves into society. And I think we need to change that and reduce it from six months to three months. Remember, it's not that long ago when asylum seekers in this country were completely banned from seeking any work. And, it, it, you know, it, 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 I, I right. think we Do you agree to... with that proposal, Well, no, I don't Jim? think we should confuse the international protection process with the requirement for economic migrants. Obviously, we don't want to end up like the UK. We need migrants to come into Ireland in order to provide work. But once you start linking that with international protection, which is about protecting people who are fleeing persecution, I think you undermine both processes and I think they should be kept separate. I don't understand why it's seen as being undermined. Like, as in, asylum seekers can, can seek work from six months. We're just talking about shorting that to three months. And at a time where there are employers, as I said, you know, screaming, looking for, talking about the labour shortages, there is skilled labour sitting inside, right. uh, like, as in uh, direct provision centres at this point in time. And we need to be able to, you know, we have the largest, the single largest migration event in this country in, 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 in decades. We okay. need to be able to look positively on that okay, was, and see how we can actually integrate uh, Also, uh, sorry, last question, Kevin. There was also a suggestion from Simon Harris uh, over the weekend that he was going to be able to speed up the application process, particularly from people that come from safe nations, um, I think is the terminology that's used in the application uh, process. At the moment, it's about two years and he said he could reduce it down to 12 weeks. Is yeah. that actually in any way realistic? It's a kind of a believe it when you see it kind of scenario because in the reality is, especially with people with no documentation, which we've been talking about, it takes a lot of investigation to find out the backstories here, to find out if they're telling the truth. And very often, the judgment has to be made on whether the, the, those assessing them actually just believe the story or not, because you can't back up a lot of the stories that people come with and you look where they came from and you make a judgment call. Doing that in the shorter space, it can definitely be sped up. Whether he can bring it all down to 12 weeks, I'm not sure. All right, look, we have to leave it there for now. My thanks to uh, Cal Malone for joining us. Lots more after the break when we ask if it is time for parents to take a bit more responsibility for the amount of time their children are spending online. Now, a new survey for an online safety charity, Cyber Safe Kids, has revealed that half of the young people questioned believe they spent too much time online, while almost a third say they can go online whenever they want. Joining me now to delve a little more into the findings is CEO of Cyber Safe Kids, Alex Cooney. Jim, Marie and Kevin are still with us. I'm going to come to you first, Alex. Initially, I saw that stat, 50% of children can see that they spend too much time online as a positive thing, you know, there's a little self-awareness. But then also I thought there's something quite sad about that, that our children are already saying, I'm addicted to this thing. And this is a survey of eight to 12 year olds. So it is already, you know, they're, they're quite young children. So yeah, I, I was also quite impressed by their self-awareness. And actually the, the statistic for them, the 50% thought they spent too much time online. When we asked them how, if their parents thought they spent too much time online, only 39% said yes. So they're actually thinking that they spend more time online than their parents even, which I think shows a little bit of a disconnect there as well. Where is that awareness, do you think, coming from at that young age? 
I think we're talking about it a lot more. So there's conversations in the media, there's conversations probably at home, and there's conversations between uh, adults at home as well. So I think we're just a lot more conscious of it, uh, which is a good thing. I think we need to be conscious of it. You mentioned there the 39%, I think, of parents didn't see um, the amount of time their child being online is obviously a huge problem. Is that part of the difficulty here? Do you think it is time for parents to take a more active role in managing their child's access to the online world? Yeah. I mean, that's why we're launching this campaign today. Same rules apply. We want parents to take the same approach to parenting their children online as they would offline. So if you think of anything, any other area of a child's life that involves opportunity and risk, so take riding a bike. You know, you wouldn't just give a, a, a toddler an adult bike and say, off you go. We know we need to prepare them. We know that it's it's we're putting in time so that they get to this, they can have this greater independence down the track. And it's a process. And we need to approach this online parenting in the same way. It's a huge responsibility when our children are online. Uh, and it's very difficult. It's, you know, it's very challenging because this is a phenomenon of the last 15 years. Uh, it's, it's quite new. And a lot of the parents didn't, you know, weren't parented on this as children. It's interesting, Jim, because as parents, I think we are so acutely aware of the dangers of the outside world and we do everything we can as parents generally to try and protect our children from the outside world and yet when it comes to the online world even though we have been talking about it um, for years now in fairness mm -hmm. we, it's, we still haven't made that connection. Yeah it's, it's difficult for parents like we all know that in the past in order to keep a child quiet or something to get a bit of peace it'll allow the child to look at the screen and listen, I commend Alex for doing this research. This is my own view is I'm not going to start giving lectures to the people of Ireland about how to be a good parent. But I do think there is a problem we're going to reach with the amount of time that kids are spending on screens. And like my concern is that it is really interfering with their capacity to maintain attention. And like it's going to be a problem. A lot of them now is just immediate satisfaction. Look at something for 15 seconds, 15 seconds, and that affects their attention span. Listen, I don't have a solution for it. All I can advise if people are foolish enough to take advice from me is try and get your kid interested in something as well. A sport, a hobby, a bit of acting, uh, whatever it is, boxing, anything. Just try and get an interest for your child outside of the screen. And I think that's a responsibility that every parent should try to comply with, John. Yeah, Kevin, I am conscious you and I are both parents of very young children. <clears throat> Do you think we have become overly reliant on the screen ourselves? Yeah. The screen as a distraction <laughs> for a child or, you know, we give it to them for 10 minutes, half an hour for just a peace, space, time to, you know, it could be take a work phone call, do laundry, mm. eat a meal, you know, just give them your guaranteed 10 minutes. Are we doing that, I suppose, without thinking of the consequences of it? Yeah, well, like, well I judge myself. Or is it just me? <laughs> Am I the only one that's going to judge no, myself well, well, I judge myself. It is that thing of, oh, I have to take the Teams call now. Oh, okay, 10 minutes. And I'm just while I do this work call, it happens. Or you go out for the restaurant or whatever. And it all becomes a bit unseemly and you do that thing where you think everyone else realises that your child is making a bit of noise when actually they're probably just getting on with their evening and you need to keep them quiet. Um, and it happens and you, you don't want it to happen. You want to resist it, but it happens. And, and I suppose part of it is probably that we're all so connected as well, though, in that, you know, you come home from work, but you're still checking the emails on your phone or you're turning on Alexa or you're doing the heat with, with uh, Nest or something like that. So everything we do is based around technology. So they're just coming up in a generation where it's so normal that their homework will be done using technology. 
every application form they ever fill in. They'll never again sit at the kitchen table filling out reams and reams of forms, whether it's for a bank loan or car insurance or anything like that. So their entire lives are based around a screen. And it is starting from, let's be honest, the age of one or two. And does that concern you as a parent of a young child? Yeah, but I don't know why, if, if that makes sense. And that in itself is a problem. Like, I, I, I don't... I know what TikTok is and I don't want to make myself sound like an old fart here now. But like, You've heard oh, of the World Wide I'll, Web, have but, you? But I, I'll be honest and say I have a two and a half year old and she has seen a lot more TikTok than I have. Okay, so yeah. that's... okay. everybody's been honest here. Marie, okay. you also have young children. 30% of the respondents in this report said they could go online eight to 12 years of age whenever they want. Yeah, well, look, I think that, like, obviously the online world is, is, is amazing and it's brilliant and, and we have to be also acknowledge that and in terms of for education and for connecting and all that. But I suppose it is terrifying, some of the statistics that have come out. And, and, and there is obviously an element of, you know, as parents, how do we actually, like, there's a learned behaviour, I think, of children. If they see us online, of course, how do, you know, like, is it, they, they know no different. But I, I, I think... Beyond parental responsibility as well, we also have to look at the very serious, you know, I suppose, um, implications from the research state, particularly with regards to cyberbullying. Ireland, you know, Irish kids experiencing some of the highest levels of cyberbullying. And I think there's a real responsibility, particularly when you think of that we have the world's largest social media giants located here in Ireland. And, you know... I think they have been really found wanting in terms of stepping up to the mark and ensuring that all possible, you know, okay. uh, securities are put in place. But we so do we have... Actually, no, no, and that's not to obviate from parental responsibility at all. But it's also really important that we have okay. very significant cyberbullying violence online and we don't have proper securities um, in place to, 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 to very mitigate that. Briefly, Alex, the Online Safety Commissioner is taking up the role uh, next week. What is the first thing that she should prioritise? Well, the safety codes will be absolutely key because that will be the measure, the bar by which the the, the company, you know, the companies must reach. Um, that you know, we need they need to be under much greater scrutiny. They certainly aren't doing enough. And whilst our campaign today is focused on parenting and it's trying to support parents and provide great resources um, for them, it this there, it doesn't take away the responsibility that is on tech companies. You know, the reason that we all struggle to put down devices is because they are the apps and the games are designed to hold our attention. Mm -hmm for as long as possible. All right, look, we have to leave it there. But my thanks to all of our guests tonight. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms. And you can now find us on those Young People channels, Instagram and TikTok. Uh, you've heard of those, Kevin? Uh, tonight, VMTV. But from all the late team here, good night. Take care. Bye.